today's TribCast is presented by the Driscoll Hotel. Celebrate Texas Independence Day at the Driscoll on March 2nd in a style that only the oldest hotel in Texas's capital can do. And by TASBO. As the trusted resource for school finance and operations, the Texas Association of School Business Officials has been supporting public education in Texas since 1946. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas Hi, this is MJ Hagar, combat veteran and District 31 congressional candidate. If you're looking for fake news, you're in the wrong place. Enjoy this week's TribCast, and now here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. This is Emily Ramshaw, here on Wednesday, February 28th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast on the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. Hey, I'm really feeling a little bit without Patrick and Ross here. Like something is wrong. Yeah, you're the only one wearing a tie? <laughs> yes. Oh, all right, good. Uh, we have our political editor, Amon Bathija. Hello. We have At least Tex- he put on a jacket. Did <laughs> he did. <laughs> Texas Ag Commissioner candidate Trey Blocker. Good morning. Thanks also for has me. on a jacket. Also has on a jacket, no tie. No tie. Evan's the only stuffy one in this crew. And we have our Dallas Bureau Chief, uh, uh, Brandon Formby, who's going to be joining us in just a moment. He's off screen, off air, but you'll get him in uh, about and 10 minutes. And Sans here. jacket. Sans jacket, which you'll only know if you're Wait, watching. You've got to get those media. socks on the camera at some point. It's true. He's got some great ones. Uh, yeah. Also, just a quick reminder that you can join us live in person next Wednesday, the morning after the primary. At the Austin Club. Uh, you just unfortunately have to get up at the crack of dawn to do it. So, all right, one of those primaries that we're going to be watching is yours, Trey, your bid to defeat Ag Commissioner Sid Miller and another opponent who we've had a lot of fun with in the past, <laughs> uh, Jim Hogan. What do you think your chances are realistically? I think the chances are really, really good at this point. As you all know, because you took part in the poll uh, about two weeks ago, you all released a poll with the University of Texas that, when you boiled it down, basically said that 74% of Republicans wanted anybody but Sid Miller in this race. And so I think that's a very, very bad spot to be in if you're an incumbent three weeks out from the election. But that's so. not the choice. The choice is not Sid Miller and not Sid Miller. The choice is Sid Miller or you or Jim Hogan. And Jim Hogan has surprised us now for two consecutive election cycles that's by right. being switching Some, parties so, something well but also something of a viable guy i mean he, he did fine in our poll he could push you guys into a runoff couldn't he that's that's exactly right that's a it's a very significant possibility in order what's the most likely outcome a runoff with you and sid a runoff with sid and hogan or a runoff with you and hogan it, you know if i if i were to guess i would say it's a runoff between me and sid so then what's your strategy in a runoff? I mean, obviously, this is an election that uh, an agency that in this election has never been far from the headlines. The agency has frankly been in the headlines nonstop since Sid Miller Sadly. Took, took office. Sadly. Uh, do you have some kind of grand plans to, you know, turn things around so that it is no longer a laughing stock? I mean, you, one of your own ads also made headlines for like stabbing an already dead <laughs> hog. Yeah, he didn't look all that dead, but... Um. <laughs> he was hanging upside down by his feet. Are you referring to the hog or Sid? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this. You know, this election really isn't about me. This election is a referendum on the incumbent and his job performance at, over the past three years, and it's been abysmal. Uh, so it doesn't shock me at all that uh, 74% of Republican voters are looking for an alternative. 
right? Uh, so that's, that's a scenario. But to answer your question, my goal as ag agriculture commissioner would to be to make sure that this agency is not in, in the news uh, constantly for, you know, either the unethical behavior of the, of the commissioner, uh, which we've had problems with this commissioner in that regard, or uh, raising fees on farmers, ranchers, and everybody else regulated by the industry over the objections of a very conservative Texas legislature, over the objections of the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, um, and, and growing the bureaucracy. I, if, if we're going to be in the news, I want it to be for good things. I want it to be because we're promoting agriculture and we're promoting the health and economic viability of rural Texas, not for shenanigans. Mm -hmm. uh, President Trump just yesterday endorsed Sid Miller uh, and embraced his tagline, I think it's Trump's man in Texas. Trump's man in Trump's Texas. Man right? in Texas. Trump's man in Texas. Well, I, I don't view that as an endorsement. It looked like an afterthought to me. Well, it was four and a half hours. It was a few hours. Four and a half hours after the first tweet. First tweet, he endorsed Abbott, Patrick, Paxton, and Cruz. And then he came back around and did Bush, Miller, Hager, and Craddock. Really, the, the, the omission of Bush and Miller made me and made, I think, other people wonder what was going on here. Sure. Probably got a few phone calls. Yeah. Well, look, President Trump didn't want Sid Miller at USDA, so he didn't hire him to go to D.C. So I guess it was nice of him to at least try to help him hold on to the job that he has. But in my view, if Sid Miller is not good enough for the swamp in D.C., then he's not good enough for Texas but, either. But, but if, if Trump voters in Texas see the president tweeting that they should vote for Sid Miller, are the Trump voters wrong? Is the president wrong? Are you running against the president? No, I don't think so. I, I, Sid Miller helped Trump, so I, I would expect Trump to help Miller. You endorse but the Trump agenda? I also let me ask your answer your question first. I think Trump voters are going to look at Commissioner Miller's record uh, and his failures in office, and they're going to vote based on that. They they understand Trump's uh, afterthought, quote unquote, endorsement for what it is. So uh, it's, this is not going to be a, a make agriculture great again, <laughs> magaga kind of moment here? Like, not... I, I think President Trump is, is doing a great job so far in the face of, of huge obstacles. So I think he's, he's appointed a great Supreme Court justice in Gorsuch. I think the, the tax bill is going to prove to be good for the U.S. economy. Uh, I like the fact that he's rolling back a, a lot of Obama-era regulation. So I, I, I support what he's doing so far. We'll see what he does with immigration reform. What is your personal feeling on the social media habits of your opponent and of the president? So there's a big difference between the social media habits of my opponent and the president. The president's social media habits, whether you like them or not, are intelligent and calculated. The social media post. Anyone's ever described Trump's I know. I think way. that may be a first. Yeah. Well, I, I think you need to dig into them a little deeper and get past your initial reaction to them and see what he's trying to achieve, mm -hmm. right? Whereas my opponent, he posts something a hundred times a day, and a lot of times it's just nonsensical. So there's a big difference uh, between the two. You don't. You 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 will not uh, stir the waters on social media if you're elected commissioner. You won't post fake news, as, <laughs> as has been alleged. <laughs> or like bombs blowing the up the Muslim repeatedly. world. That's yeah, not look, on your agenda. I I have made this promise to voters across the state of Texas. Yeah. I will not be an embarrassment as the agriculture commissioner of Texas. I will not use the C word on social media, no matter how much I don't like somebody. Uh, so no, I do not plan on having a, a, a huge social media. The C word in uh, this case is crepe. 
That's the NC word. Trey, the commissioner's main line of, of argument against you has been that he is eighth generation ag <laughs> and that you're not and that you don't have any background in ag, you don't have any life in ag, and that that somehow makes you less qualified for this job. What do you say about that? Uh, my first reaction is I'm wondering who all was in Texas eight generations ago. But uh, but nonetheless, the answer to the question is, you know, my entire career, as you know, I've, I've spent, uh, I spent about 10 years working in the legislative process for rural members of the legislature, working on agriculture issues and issues affecting rural Texas. Also, in the last 10 years as an ethics attorney and a lobbyist or legislative advisor, I've represented a number of different agriculture organizations from the Cattle Raisers Association to the Forestry Association. Uh, I even had the distinct pleasure one time of representing the Catfish Institute of America. So, no, there was a Catfish Institute of America. I didn't either before that time, but this, so I know quite a bit about agriculture and, and how to move agriculture forward in the state of Texas. But let me be clear this is not a contest to see who can uh, rope a cow or, or shoe a horse. This is a, an election to determine who can run this agency in an ethical, fiscally responsible, yeah. fiscally conservative manner. That's what this election is about. And the conservative part, just to stay on this, you know, you've attacked the commissioner for not being sufficiently conservative on immigration because he sure. voted in 2001 for a policy to allow in-state tuition to undocumented students that he defends to this day as the right decision. So, did Rick, so did Rick Perry defend it long after the, the bill was in law. In fact, arguably his presidential campaign in 2012, that was the thing it was impaled on, not so much oops, but it was the booing over that issue. He counters by saying when Trey Blocker was a, what did you refer to yourself as a <laughs> legislative advocate? lobbyist, that you gave money uh, to Democratic candidates as part of your as your work. He says that makes you less conservative than he is. Well, that's nonsense, and, and he knows it's nonsense. Did you give money to Democrats? Absolutely. It was part of my job. You know, I don't see him calling President Trump a Democrat or a liberal, and President Trump gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Democrats over the years and, and voted in Democratic primaries. And I don't, I don't see uh, my opponent attacking the president in that regard. So he, know, he knows what the truth of the matter is. There are a few races where uh, some of the challengers have said, if it's a runoff, I will endorse anyone but the incumbent. Mm. Um, if it's a runoff between uh, Sid Miller and Jim Hogan, will you endorse Jim Hogan? That's a fabulous question. <laughs> I have not pondered, uh, and I don't intend on pondering that question until it becomes a reality. So, so you won't say whether you'll vote for Sid Miller? I will not say that at this point. But you're not saying that you would I not voted vote for, for Trey Blocker. I've already voted. <laughs> well, I believe you. <laughs> Did you vote for every other statewide elected official? Incumbent? Did I vote for did you vote? Did you vote for every other incumbent? I'm not going to answer that question either. Why not? Nah, because as Governor Abbott said, the ballot's secret. I'm going to keep it secret. Yeah, but your perspective on the, the fight between uh, Republicans and Republicans, which is really the defining aspect of our politics right now, is an interesting topic of conversation. It tells us where you stand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that. One I'm not thing, asking if you voted for Scott Milder, Trey. I'm asking if you voted for Jerry Patterson. Oh, there's the question. Yeah, the specifically. Question. Uh, did I vote for Jerry Patterson? 
I'm not going to answer that either. I'm going to let them fight their battle. But here's what I will say is this. Uh, I have watched this, and I think you all have probably watched this over the years. And as a Republican, as a conservative, this is what really bothers me, is I've watched perfectly good, well-intentioned people get elected from different parts of the state, whether it's Lufkin or Lubbock, and come to Austin and, and get enamored by the allure of the power and the influence and the money. And, and that's to me when they become a politician. And I define a politician as somebody who, once they've succumbed to that siren sound, they they are only concerned about one thing, and that's getting reelected, right? It's not about doing what's right, and it's not about doing what the voters of Texas or the voters of their district sent them here to do. So how do you avoid so, the temptation? Surround yourself with good people who keep, who keep you in line and, and keep you focused on what you're there to do. And, and I think as soon as people lose track of that, uh, that's when it's time for voters to send them home. So I don't care who it is from the top to the bottom if you've lost sight of why you ran initially. And some people may run just for the power. But if you actually had good intentions and somehow you've lost sight of it along the way, that's when it's time for you either to realize it's time to go home or it's time for voters to send you home. Well, I'm hearing the siren sound right now. Apparently, it's Means time for you to go home. We- <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm getting the boots. Y'all need a hook on this yep. show. Right? Yeah, I know. But thank you so much for joining us, and Absolutely. we will be uh, eagerly anticipating the results of Tuesday and, night. And believe me, regardless of the outcome of that race, we'll be talking about you next Wednesday morning. <laughs> Great. Okay, good. <laughs> thank All right. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I thank appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. Thank you, thanks. Emily. All right. Well, uh, just a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook or Twitter, you can send uh, questions our way and we will do our best to get to them. We are going to bring in our Dallas Bureau Chief, Brandon Formby, to talk to us about uh, just a really important story that he wrote this week, taking a critical look at the state's and Fed's response to Hurricane Harvey, and in particular, this like totally new experiment in disaster management. What did you learn? Um, I've learned a lot about disaster recovery in the last six months. Um, But yeah, um, probably about three weeks after the storm, uh, Governor Greg Abbott um, announced that the General Land Office, um, which normally focuses on long-term recovery, um, which is like actual, you know, rebuilding permanent homes uh, and infrastructure, was going to be overseeing the short-term housing programs that that FEMA, you know, historically for the last 20-plus years um, has overseen. It's like, why of, in the beginning? I mean, why was Texas even getting in the business of doing something that was traditionally FEMA's responsibility? Uh, what g- the governor's office says is that basically in the, the weeks after the storm, FEMA, you know, was telling him that they did not have the, you know, the staffing, the capability to really handle, you know, what was about to become, you know, the largest housing recovery in America and that they really needed state help. Um, and so Abbott chose the GLO given its uh, previous disaster experience. Because um, George P. Bush needed one more thing to handle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, walk me through some of the numbers in your story. I saw, I read that more than 100 days after Harvey's landfall, the General Land Office had only provided short-term housing to 900 families. I mean, that seems like a massively short um, it also sounds like a mailer from the Patterson campaign. It does. <laughs> yeah. I read it from Brandon's story. Right. Just FYI. Yeah. I mean, is that is that an atrocious figure? Is this is it defensible? Uh, a lot of people think it is, um, and you know, atrocious or defensible? Yeah, uh, atrocious. Um, and um, you know, a lot of of mayors and county commissioners, especially from the coastal bend, um, you know, have been really furious about that, and even state lawmakers. Um, you know, toward the end of last year, um, we're really grilling Bush on, 
you know, why, you know, the, the application numbers for aid were so high, but the numbers of people actually in programs were so low. Um, and what the GLO has said is that, you know, creating this, you know, new system where, um, you know, a state agency oversees these FEMA programs um, kind of, uh, you know, they had to take this crash course in, you know, federal laws that, you know, they had no experience in. I thought we did everything better in Texas. <laughs> you know, and there was a story last week that suggested, I think it was in the Chronicle, that suggested that w by, by doing what the governor's office has done, what the state has done, that George P. Bush was essentially set up to fail. That's, I mean, that was the next thing I was going to ask. Do you agree with that? Did the feds set Texas up to fail? And or did, did Abbott Texas set... Yeah, Bush or, up to fail. Or right, or did Abbott set Bush up to fail? The the people in the coastal bend, they like point their fingers at FEMA and they mm -hmm. I mean that's exactly what they said is that um you know FEMA would you know was setting the GLO and and Abbott up to fail um by kind of, you know, pushing this this duty onto them um you know so that if anything happened, you know, they would get blamed, but I mean they're they're pointing their fingers at FEMA. It's interesting that the local officials are willing to do that and our statewide officials aren't really blaming the federal government much. You know, if Obama was still president, you'd feel like they just right. wouldn't you, shut up about it. You can't it. blame the Trump You can't blame a Republican administration, I feel like, for... The the governor's office does blame... I mean, one of the, the pinch points that they pointed to was that uh, FEMA had auctioned off, you know, more than 100 trailers shortly before Harvey. Um, but given the, the wide scope of, of devastation here, I don't know that 100 trailers... You know them having a hundred trailers on hand would have put much of a dent in the need. Well, you you get you get to something that I think is important: the wide scope of devastation part. You know how much of this is an inadequate response by the state, and how much of this is this, this is just an enormous. This this storm yeah. was enormous AF basically. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that this this storm was something that nobody ever predicted. Nobody could have predicted. It was a once in a lifetime storm, once in an ever storm. And so there would have been no adequate response by FEMA or the state or the land office or any, any anything to this. Um, I th I think we might get like more answers on that and kind of what the holdups were and how long things were held up. Um, you know, as the GLO works on this report that uh, it's going to come out with on recommendations for you know future responses. Yeah. Um, there you know suggestions. There's this supposed new playbook for disaster response. I think there was some, one really interesting element of this that, like, you know, Abbott made the decision that this was going to happen, but didn't tell George P. right away. So, like, the land office Correct. couldn't even get started for what? How many? It was like twenty-three um, days, or almost something? three weeks. Right. Correct. I mean, so what? What was the rationale or the thinking there? Um, if, you're, if Texas is going to take this on, why wait for three weeks after the storm to get the agency to act? Uh, what Abbott's office said is that you know basically the state was focused on you know immediate response, um, which is you know like setting up shelters rescuing people, things like that. It seems also like a pretty immediate response, though, to get people into temporary housing. And rescues were well over <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by that point. And again, what's what's happened from the George P. standpoint is that uh, it created a campaign issue for a challenger in, in the person of Jerry Patterson to say, when I was land commissioner and I dealt with Dolly and Ike, I dealt with it differently. The agency dealt with it differently. We had a disaster relief team that approached this differently. Uh, and this is a, a failing on the part of of, uh, of my successor, when the reality is it may have been more of a failing on the part of the people above his successor, mm. right? 
Yeah. But ultimately, you have to be responsible for the thing that happens out of your agency or it doesn't happen. So what are the actual, what are the real world implications been of all of this? I mean, beyond the politics and the agencies, like what's the reality on the ground and for how many people? Um, the number, I mean, it's hard to quantify, um, but I mean, just in general, it's left a lot of people in limbo. I mean, you have thousands of people six months later still, you know, living in hotels, thousands more, you know, just waiting to, you know, find out if they're going to get any kind of help. Right. Great. Well, thank you for that, Brandon. Uh, and I want to say thank you to one more TribCast sponsor. Uh, thank you, Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas identifies breakthrough ideas to improve education, pilots them in our public schools, and supports the conditions and public policies, allowing them to scale to benefit all Texas students. For more, visit RaiseYourHandTexas.org. Uh, Evan, you were in California this week, and from the texts that you and I were exchanging, your big takeaway was everybody on the ground wants to know about Beto. Is that I, Beto I could, thing in I Texas could not, real? I could not go five feet where I was in uh, San Diego without people from around the country saying, who's this Beto O'Rourke? What's with Beto O'Rourke? Does Beto O'Rourke have a chance of beating Ted Cruz? And look, there, there's been a lot of, of uh, little things that you should knit together to, to end up in this place. Um, the the fact that the president's approval ratings in Texas, as uh, is the case around the country, are you know below fifty percent. Uh, the assumption is that if the state is not uh, a majority for Trump, then the state is susceptible to demo a democratic uh, alternative pitch. And the assumption is that if Trump is not at fifty percent in Texas, then maybe Democrats have an opportunity to take the state from red to purple or purple to blue. I'm very skeptical of um, the degree to which the president is going to be a factor in that Senate race. Um, there are people who say, you know, Ted Cruz's popularity in Texas, according to our poll, he was about even. I think it was 31 disapproved, 30 approved, or the view of Ted Cruz's performance, that that somehow created an opportunity. But the biggest thing that happened of late that gives people reason to question the O'Rourke phenomenon, if it is a phenomenon, is that his fundraising has been unusually strong for a Democrat, not just in this cycle, but in the last 20 years. And he, I mean, I think three times what Cruz has won. He outraised Ted Cruz period. by almost three times in the first 45 days of the year. He has, uh, 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 a, a couple different times, he's outraised Cruz in the quarterly reporting periods. Cruz has more money on hand, but O'Rourke is showing some momentum. And the thing about that $2.3 million he raised in the first 45 days was that it was from 43,000 donors. If you go back to the 2012 campaign, Greg Abbott raised. I think he had 25 gifts of at least six figures at one point in the 2014 governor's race. So you think about it, if they were just $100,000 gifts and they were not, he would have raised during that little period from 25 people what Beto O'Rourke raised from 43,000 people in 45 right. days. So O'Rourke, uh, his success at fundraising, the fact that he's been willing to travel around to every county or as many counties, I think he's been to more than 215 counties out of the 254 at this point, including to a lot of counties where Democrats have historically feared to tread, where Democratic candidates don't campaign and where Democrats don't, if you happen to be a Democrat living in one of these counties, you're not presented with an alternative mm -hmm to the person who's in the in the office, and so you maybe forget that there's even a Democratic Party. Right. He's actually approaching this very differently. He's running the equivalent of the old Howard Dean 50-state strategy. Yeah, I mean, our It's the 254-county strategy. Our reporter, Abby Livingston, our D.C. bureau chief, was in North Texas, you know, driving around this generally conservative enclaves of Highland Park, you know, in the Park Cities, and she said she was seeing Beto signs, you know, every few houses. I mean, she, she felt like she was going to rallies and seeing more people than she was used to seeing. I mean, I guess, you know, Linda asks on social media, and I'm curious what you all think, is Beto the Democrats' best hope in recent memory? 
I mean, compare him to well, Wendy if, Davis. If we were having this conversation on four years ago, Wendy Davis was a combination of Pele, Zeus, Jesus, and Billy Jack, right, right in that race going into it. I, I mean, she was a really flawed <laughs> that, that, candidate. That, that's how I say it. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's. I, I mean, there were a lot of people who were thinking Wendy Davis should not be running for governor. It's just none of them were in Texas. The country wanted her to so run for governor. So you think that Beto on paper is a stronger candidate than Wendy Davis? Oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. That's not even a question. So ex- expand on that. That that's, it's that's not Wendy question. Davis no. became known on abortion. No Democrat wants that to be your defining issue in Texas. Mm-hmm. Wendy Davis uh, had some ethical issues, valid or not. They were, they were perception issues about mm-hmm. her business that Abbott was able to hammer her on. Right. All these things just are not what you want to do when you're running statewide in Texas. Well, those are the things you want in a candidate who's running a specific district where that candidate can win. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I think that another aspect of this is, is that Congressman Tiger Beat is drawing these, <laughs> you know, teeming throngs in places. Oh my God, they view, they view him as kind of, you know, he's he's kind of a, a, a young, uh, well presentable, uh, energetic, articulate, polite, except for the f bombs. Uh, they like F-bombs that too. Are actually polite. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, personally, but uh, but he 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 sets up really well, and he is also very much in tune with the moment. He does not talk about the resistance. He does not. He does not wade into the Bernie versus Hillary stuff. But he's very much a candidate who benefits from the environment that he's in politically right now. Right. The, the Democratic Party's momentum at the moment is the kind of momentum that he can surf like a wave. Well, you know, and time is on his side right now. I mean, it's still so early, you know, in this. Whole but cycle. we should remember that Ted Cruz had some pretty big rallies, also. You right. know, Ted mm-hmm. Cruz is not a. a Ted Cruz is going to be a really tough candidate for anybody to beat. Ted Cruz has a little bit like the president, I would say. He has maybe a lower ceiling but a higher floor than the average candidate. And I, you know, this race could conceivably end up being closer, but he has O'Rourke's got a long way to go totally. for this race to truly be competitive. I see that CNN uh, today or over the last couple of days, downgraded the Senate race in Texas from solid Republican to likely Republican. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and but there's de- an alert saying we're watching this now. CNN and, is you know, watching de- this de- race. Democrat, <laughs> Democrats are plotting over this as the, so, as though this is some moment when all they've done is basically acknowledge, yeah, he's a stronger candidate than people anticipated mm-hmm. when they thought that there was no chance in hell. Now there's a chance in hell, as opposed to no chance in hell. Right. Right. This woman was asking if Beto O'Rourke is the Democrats' best shot. It almost is maybe more Ted Cruz is the Democrats' best shot because, you know, he's got, like you said, 30% approved, 30% disapproved. But the people that disapprove really disapprove. And I think that's... But are those the, people who disapprove, do, do they disapprove enough if they're Republicans to vote for a Democrat? That, that, that's been the big challenge. Right. Over the years, I've heard people say, not just of Ted Cruz, but of Ted Cruz, Republicans, say of Ted Cruz, uh, for instance, he's not my kind of Republican. Oh really? What what do you mean? Well, he's you know, he's kinda out there and he's a little more conservative than I am, this that. These are traditional Republican donors in Texas, the kind of people who fund Republican candidates for years at a high level. And then you say, Well, would you ever consider supporting somebody running against mm-hmm. Ted Cruz? Oh, I couldn't. I think a lot I, I I think that you have a lot of people who will say in certain circles that I have concerns about Ted Cruz, but at the end of the day, are they going to vote for a Democrat over Ted Cruz? No. Are they going to support Ted Cruz? Yes. Now there were a ha- handful of newspapers in Texas because the whole editorial board endorsement thing is so screwy these days, including the Dallas Morning News, that endorsed a rando opponent of Ted Cruz's in the primary. He has like three opponents in the primary. Ted Cruz is going to be the nominee, and Ted Cruz sets up absolutely as the favorite in this race. But the fact that we're even talking about the possibility that this race could be competitive 
is a victory for our work. Right. Well, there are a lot of races that I still want to talk about here, uh, but Brandon really wants to talk about the Donna Dukes race. I just <laughs> I want to hear y'all's take on it. This has been a um, a fun one or an interesting one to just kind of like track um, from from Dallas. It's been well, really interesting. Do y'all? I mean. How do you see it playing out? Do you, you think Donna she, Dukes wins? Where do you think she is? First of all, she's where missing. Is she? She's <laughs> oh, in Florida. Oh. I'm assuming. Well, did you read Edgar's story today? I did. <laughs> yeah, she's like totally MIA. Yeah, but but Pflugerville could be MIA. I mean, she's <laughs> MIA. The A in MIA stands for Austin. <laughs> right? She's missing in missing Austin. Missing in Austin. She's up in Pflugerville. Yeah, that's this week. delicious. She's chilling. What what is she going to win? I think at the very least she'll make a runoff. So there's a bunch of candidates mm-hmm. in that race. Yeah. There were really, other than Donna Dukes, there were two candidates in that race. Cheryl Cole, the former mayor pro tem council member, mm-hmm. and um, Chito Vela, uh, an attorney, progressive attorney, who both, under ordinary circumstances, as the single opponent to Donna Dukes in that race, could conceivably beat her, sure. right, as an alternative. I mean, Trey was talking about the ABS vote, the anybody but Sid vote. There is an ABD vote probably mm-hmm. in this primary. Totally. The question is whether Cole and Vela split it enough that Dukes retains support and gets to where she needs the to The thing get. I haven't been able to tell is how many voters actually know anything about the scandals that Donna Dukes has had and how many of them are going to vote for governor or Congress and they're just going to see State House and they're going to recognize Donna's name and well, we also I have, think yeah, primary right. voters are pretty informed on this stuff. I mean, the I, kinds I, of people who turn out for primaries yeah. are but, not the average bear. Right. But, but I mean, one of the scandals was this, you know, these criminal charges in that case just completely disintegrated. But do you think it still hurt her? Or do you think people look at that like, oh, like the DA didn't know what they were doing? Yeah, the, the and months and months and months of headlines about her, you know, using her staffers as her nannies. I mean, I think that kind of stuff lingers. I, I, I would submit to you that there's a reverse aspect to that, which is for a lot of people who believe that the establishment is out to get them and their community, not just African-Americans, mm-hmm. for people who believe that the criminal justice system is effed. They see what happened to Donna Dukes, and they say, "Good for her for 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 for, uh, for not being on the wrong end of that." And yeah. and and there's a backlash. And look, a I lot talk, of her colleagues said that. A lot as of her I as I said at the to time, for her, and it, then it all disappeared. Well, yeah. no, Garnet Coleman made a ten thousand dollar pledge as he said he was going to. I don't know whether he ultimately paid it. Garnet Coleman was the legislator I talked to, African American state representative from Houston, around the time that I was getting ready to interview Representative Dukes last year, and he said. The recruitment of candidates to run against Donna Dukes and the endorsements by much of the white establishment in Austin of Cheryl Cole, who is herself African-American, but the endorsements were largely white politicians. Uh, Garnet Coleman said point blank on the record, this is the white establishment in Austin telling a black community who should represent them. And he said the black legislators in the House, not every single one, but a great number of them are going to rally behind Donna Dukes because this is basically white Austin telling black Austin what to do. I do believe that that aspect of this story is not something that can be ignored. Right. So right? Alex Absolutely. wants to know on social media, do you think Representative Dukes will make the runoff and who would be the favorite to be in the runoff with her? I would guess Cheryl Cole, just um, you know, with her name identification. Yeah, and, I, I have absolutely no, but, idea. I have absolutely no yeah, idea. I mean, Ch- Chito Vela is ran a really strong campaign mm-hmm. and it's you can't ignore the fact that um a hispanic in a race like that will draw certain mm-hmm. voters who will go and not know any of the candidates but see the hispanic name mm-hmm. and right. may be more likely to check my out. assumption is dukes makes the runoff but 
it's absolutely possible that she doesn't. Yeah. And if it if it happened that she didn't make the runoff, it would hardly be the most surprising thing. I think certainly if it's Dukes plus one of the other two, the one who doesn't make the runoff immediately endorses the non-Dukes candidate. But remember, there's also an independent candidate planning to run in the fall. Oh, right. Um, Michael Dell's former oh. chief of staff, a guy who runs a nonprofit, a very smart guy who was originally going to run as Democrat and running as an independent. He believes that whatever happens in the Democratic primary, he'll be the beneficiary of this kind of chaotic environment. There's a Republican, Gabriel uh, Nila, Nila, who is Nyla, running uh, as well. You know, who, who knows right. what's going to happen here? Well, we're about to be out of time, but Aman, quickly give us the Cliff Notes version of why Alyssa Milano was in a spin class in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, a John Culberson seat in Houston is one that nationally Democrats are targeting because Hillary Clinton won that district in 2016. There are a bunch of Democrats running for the race, and uh, Laura Moser is one of them. And uh, last, I believe it was last week, uh, the DCCC took the unusual step of actually publicly coming out against one of the primary candidates, Laura Moser, and attacked her really hard. And it just kind of galvanized all these people that were, you know, just we were talking about White Austin telling Black Austin this how was to vote. Washington telling Houston what to do. Right. Yeah, and so. Um, it's possibly it's possible it's just backfired spectacularly because now Moser's campaign gets all has all this visibility it didn't she, have. She's before. raised eighty seven thousand dollars just in a couple days since the DCC. And the child district. who's the boss star is like campaigning. Please, um, please. Project Romeo. Our stars. reporter did ask if she still talks to Tony Danza, and they do still keep in touch. Um, <laughs> and he asks her all the time about her children. I'm so embarrassed. you totally asked her to ask that, didn't I'm you? I'm so embarrassed. Were you the I one did? covering it? No. The, the reporter we assigned did not know who's the boss. Rich, she didn't know what, who's the boss is. No, she did She's not. She's like 21. I, I told her she needs to bone up on her 80s culture, and she said she'd already been yelled at for it. So. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have. We're going to stop yelling at each other here. If you like listening to the TribCast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. If you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Driscoll Hotel, Tasbo, and Raise Your Hand Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Aman, Brandon, and our producers, Justin and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Ooh, Texas talking. Texas talking. She still talks Sorry, to Tony Bobby, Danza, and she's like real quiet, and she's yeah, like, "Who's that?" Yeah, she's like, <laughs> "I'm like, that was her dad on Who's the Boss." Oh my and god, she's like, I loved that show. <laughs>